All right. Now joining me here on Next on the T is Rick Sessinghaus. One of the things I know you know about Rick is he has been Colin Morikawa's instructor since Colin was eight years old. But let me give you a little bit more information about Rick's background. He played his college golf at California State University at Northridge, earned his doctorate in applied sports psychology, and is known as golf's mental coach. He is an expert in the mindset principles that make or break performance on or off the golf course. He's been a PGA professional at Shoal Canyon Golf Club and Valencia Country Club in Valencia, California. He's written a wonderful book titled Golf, The Ultimate Mind Game, which you can find on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. He's the founder and CEO of Sessinghaus Performance Systems, which he founded back in January of 2000. He's also a peak performance speaker, and I'm very honored he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Rick, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Chris. You know more about me than I know. <laughs> That's my job, my friend. I got to know my guests better than they know themselves. But I'm, uh, I couldn't be more excited to have you here tonight, Rick. And um, when I get a first-time guest on the show, I always like to kind of go back to the beginning with them to understand, you know, how did you first, you know, start playing golf? Who put a golf club in your hands? When did you first fall in love with a game of golf? Sure. Yeah, I played a ton of other sports. Uh, I grew up in Burbank, California, and played all these other sports. A buddy of mine took me up to a local nine-hole golf course called the Bell Golf Course, and without any lessons, he just let me borrow his clubs. We played nine holes, and I don't know, I probably shot high 60s for nine holes, but I'm this 12-and-a-half-year-old who just at that point go, wait a second, I thought this game was supposed to be easy. The little white ball just sits at you and looks at you. Uh, I play all these other sports. You're moving around. And so I was, I was hooked pretty early. And then after I let some of the other sports go by, I became super serious when I was about six. Uh, didn't play much junior golf, actually. Played on the high school team. And then from that point forward, you know, I was obsessed with it. And I was fortunate enough to walk on at Cal State Northridge, uh, played Division One uh, there. And after that, started my coaching career after, after graduating. But uh, just fell in love with everything about it because as you know, it's just this game that looks like you can master it, and uh, I'm still working on that myself. Yeah, aren't we all? And Rick, to your point, you, you talked about being an all-around athlete, playing a lots, of, lots of different sports, and I think that's one thing a lot of kids lose out on these days. I mean, you got travel baseball, you know, kids just focusing on one sport, really not getting the well-rounded background that uh, that you certainly had in playing different sports. Talk about how that helped you know, your overall golf game by being so, whether that's coordinated, eye-hand control, you know, ball control, that sort of thing. How do those other sports help you uh, get so good at the game of golf? Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great point because I know there's a big, there's a big debate in, in golf, you know, specialization, when it should happen for juniors, so on and so forth. But I was fortunate that, you know, playing tennis and baseball was great for hand-eye coordination, but also for my ability to use my hips properly rotationally, which I was going to use in golf. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that sets the, the basis for my golf swing. But I think what is lost a lot with golfers that are eight, nine, 10 years old that never play any team sports is, you know, being on a team, being coached constantly, uh, the ups and downs of winning and losing um, and, and such. So I think some people lose that. And I work with a lot of junior golfers who then end up playing college golf, and they're now literally on a team environment where the coach is telling them to wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning to go to workouts. And, and sometimes they don't transition well because they're used to their little individual sport all the time. 
Um, so I was fortunate that, yes, it helped me athletically, but I think playing, you know, football, I played high school football and, and you, you go through the ups and downs of that. I think it toughened me up um, for when I did play golf in college. So it, it was both athletic, but also the ability to be on a team and having a coach that was always on you. And Ricky talked about uh, going up to Cal State Northridge and walking on there and you actually earned your doctorate and applied sports psychology. What fascinated you about that and what drove you all the way through to getting your doctorate? Well, I think if, <laughs> if you talk to people why they get obsessed with certain things, it's actually to help themselves first. So I definitely needed to learn a little bit more about my mental skills, playing competitive golf at a fairly high level and not be able to take it to that next level professionally. I saw a blind spot for me and it, it was a mental game. And it really wasn't in other sports, to be honest with you. I, I felt I was, I was pretty solid. But when I played golf, you know, I, I had a hard time dealing with frustration and dealing with bad shots. And, and then that brought down uh, my confidence. And I had a hard time focusing under pressure. And it was just, honestly, it was just with golf. And so going down that road and understanding my own uh, faults and my, my own weaknesses, um, I also saw that as I was teaching golf, I became a member of the PGA taught full swing, traditional golf instruction. But I was seeing some what I call talented players on the range. You know, they're going through a, a lesson. I'm going, man, they're, they're playing well. I'm excited for them to go get on the golf course. And then they would come back and say, Rick, I shot 85. I go, how the heck did that happen? I mean, and so there was a disconnect I would see with performance is that people mechanically had sound swings. They had all the fundamentals down but they weren't able to translate that when they went on the golf course. So that was another reason for me to kind of get obsessed with, hey, you know, is there a mindset thing? Is there, you know, distractions, doubts, uh, emotion things that are getting in the way of somebody playing their best golf? And so I pursued that and I continue to say I pursue other elements of the mental game to, to really learn that and learn about how somebody learns and how they interpret going out and play under pressure. And Rick, that's such a great point, right? I mean, I think all of us deal with the frustration after a bad shot or a series of bad shots. Our mindset starts to head south. Doubts are in our minds. And, and you know, I, I think golf is, is one of the biggest sports for negative self-talk. We talk about this all the time <laughs> on this show, right? You know, we get down on ourselves. We, we curse ourselves. We tell ourselves, you know, how bad we are and how stupid we are and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, Taking what you learned and in, in your experiences, talk about how can we do a better job of kind of letting go of the last shot or the last few holes that we've sure. doubled or, or what have you and move on and get back to having a good time and having a positive mindset. You bet. And, and, and that's a key thing is aren't we supposed to be playing this game to enjoy it? And I think managing our emotions is the key element of that. Uh, so there's two things I would tell the listeners. First off is check your expectations. Um, I, I work with a lot of players who have unreasonable expectations. They let their ego and, oh, my gosh, I should be able to never three putt and I should hit all my fairways. And they have all these expectations that are already setting them up for frustration. So I so I show them PGA Tour stats like, you know, the average uh, professional from 100 yards is 14 point, I think, 11 feet. Right. Or, yeah, 14, 11. And they're like, no way. They, they knock it closer than that. And I said on average. Right. And I think people have. Uh, they have too high of expectations. Next thing is something I really coach a lot is post-shot routine. I'm big into learning from every opportunity instead of being critical. 
So for instance, if I just snap hook a drive into the, into the trees, which has been known to happen, um, instead of saying, you stink, Rick, that was an awful swing, you're horrible, it would be, huh, that shot wasn't very good. I wonder why it went left. Was that a mental error or a physical error? Now, most people are just going to blame their swing. That was a bad swing, Rick. And I go, I get it. But I think sometimes we create poor shots because we're not in the right mental state. So how many times have we been on a tee shot and there's water on the right, so we fear right. It's don't go right, don't go right, so we snap hook it left. So we never had a clear target to begin with. We never were committed to the shot. And that stress probably created a quicker swing that led to rotating the club face close, and now I snap hook it. So I want people to learn from it. Doesn't mean you fix it, but if I can neutralize the emotion and have you move on, then we're ready for that next shot. Because I still got to go find that that ball in the tree, and I still got to be able to think somewhat <laughs> smart as I make a decision of hitting at it from there. And and I don't want it to snowball. So listeners. Manage expectations, but also start using a post-shot routine so you learn from a shot without being critical. So let's take that in a slightly different direction, Rick, because I think what a lot of us do, to your point, is we see the trouble, right, whether it's down the right or down the left. And we immediately think to ourselves, don't hit it there. Right? So we, mm -hmm. do, we do, as you say, one of two things. We either hit it there for whatever reason. Or we go to the extreme on the other side. Talk about being, you know, standing up on the tee, recognizing there's trouble, but how do we not focus on it and focus on what we want the ball to do versus what we don't want the ball to do? Right. And, and it's a matter of when the focus changes. So if I'm on the tee, I do want to know there's water right. I do want to know there's a fairway bunker. I do want to know that there's trees. That's relevant information before I even pick my club. And so now I use that as relevant information going, oh, there's water on the right. Thus, I am going to aim a touch more left. And then I'm okay if the ball goes in the trees because that's not a penalty area. Now, I'm not saying I would love it to go in the trees, but I'm using these as data points. So now I go, what's the best decision for me to play in this environment? Oh, well, I'm going to hit driver and I'm going to be center to left center. And I'm going to hit a baby draw. It's going to start at the pine tree and it's going to draw to 10 yards from that point. So use the data at the start of the routine instead of what most people do is they go, yeah, 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 it's driver, let's hit the fairway. Then they get over the ball and they go, uh-oh, there's water on the right, you'll go in the water. So now they've flipped their picture too late, right? We want to have the clarity of picture going over into the shot and, of course, on top of the shot. So I like to ask questions a lot. So as I pick the club out, it becomes what does a good shot look like here? Well, the good shot is a driver towards the pine tree with a 10-yard draw, it's going to land out there, 260, run out 15 yards, boom. And now I have clarity with my language. Uh, language creates symbols. Those words are symbols. And now I'm getting it into that, into my, in, into the self-talk, but also into the focus. Get super creative with the visualization. You know, see a shot tracer, see it purple, see it with glitter and fireworks on it. Then the more creative we are with the, the visualization, we're going to tend to remember that more than those other images, whether it's the the water or the trees or so on and so forth. So take the information in, but at the end, get creative with visualization. Use your self-talk to be very clear of answering what does a good shot look like here. In that way, you're focusing on what you want. And to that end, let's let's move forward a little bit on the whole from the T to the green. 
you know, we get those, you know, three, four, five footers, you know, sort of those knee knockers, right? And in our minds, you know, we're, we're not, we're not always complimentary of we, I'm going to stand up there and I'm just going to make this, right? It's, oh my God, what happens if I miss it? And, uh, you know, I may, I may be losing to my buddy. I may, I may lose the hole. I may lose our bet or whatever. All those sort of negative things come into our minds versus the positive thing of seeing the line, stroking the putt, making it and walking on. How do we do a better job on the greens of not talking ourselves out of making those shortish putts? Well, as you already mentioned, it's everything about the meaning that we're putting to that four-footer. And if the four-footer is already um, triggering what would happen if I missed it, uh-oh, if I miss it, I'm going to be embarrassed. It's going to be a bogey. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to lose money to my buddies and stuff. You know, you're already way ahead in the future, correct? So I like to teach focus first is what are we paying attention through better questions? So what's the speed I want this ball to go in on? Is it Do I want to pour it in? Do I want to drip it in? Do I want to hit the back of the cup? And then once I answer that, I go, oh, what's the best line to match that speed? Oh, it's two inches outside right edge. It's going to drip in at 5 o'clock. So now I get back to the clarity of what I want, okay, but I'm asking better questions, right? Speed determines line. Ask speed first. Based on the speed, what's my line? Some people have specific points. They have an intermediate target. That's fine. But now it's, it's a focal point that is in their control. And, you know, I want to flip it on, it, on its hand, end where it's not about fear. It's about excitement. I can't wait to make this putt. This is going to be cool when I make this birdie putt. And, I'm going to tell my buddies, hey, you guys owe me, right? Change the meaning of the shot will change the emotion. And then we're also now trying to get back into the focus. Ask better questions. Rick, I want to change gears. And I, I know our listeners want to hear about your relationship with Colin Morikawa. Talk about when you guys first met and got together. Sure. Yeah, I was very fortunate to meet uh, Colin when he was eight years old um, at a little driving range uh, and course called Shoal Canyon Golf Course in Glendale, California, came up to me. He had already been in group classes for uh, the junior group, came up to me and him and his dad, and we hit it off. Uh, very, very talented, um, played baseball, basketball. And just from there on, we probably had a lesson once a week for 10 years until he went to college at Cal. Uh, through Cal, I certainly would see him here and there. And then when he turned pro, I've been out on on the road with him uh, for many of the events. But, you know, he's, he's a special talent, certainly, but talent doesn't always mean success. And he's just a great young man who's got a, a good head on his shoulders and has had the work ethic, has had the motivation, has had the mindset to learn um, more than any junior I have ever, ever worked with. And I've worked with some, some pretty good ones. So I've been super fortunate um, to be able to work with him for the last 15 years. So at what point, and you and you use the word special, at what point did you say to yourself, you know what, this kid's special? Yeah, I, I told this story where I came home from teaching one day and I sat down with my wife and I said, you know, this Colin kid, he's got it. He's got that it factor. And that was when he was 12 years old. Now, again, I don't say it from a standpoint of, oh, he can hit the ball really well and stuff like that. He's a 12-year-old. But I had not met a junior golfer who was as coachable, who was open to learning, who wasn't, you know, in a bad mood, who, who actually did what you told him. Um, it was very unique. Now, you could say, oh, he was very mature. Okay, that's fine. But never made excuses. 
He always, you know, moved forward. And luckily, you know, his parents were fantastic as a support system. So 12 years old is kind of where I go, this is different here. So it's pretty, pretty cool. Henrik, I, I know you helped Colin with the fundamentals of the game early on, but talk about how you've worked with him. We talk about the mental side of the game, working with him on his confidence, his emotional resilience, and, and being able to stay calm under pressure. Sure. Um, I tell people that he, he already had innate calmness in him, right? From a young age, like I said, he was coachable. He never got too fired up either way if something didn't go right. But one of my philosophies with development of a golfer is to look ahead one, two, and in his case, maybe three or four years. So when he's a 13-year-old, we're already thinking about college, for instance. He wanted to play high-level Division One. I. I talked to him and his parents. This is what the is going to require, right? You're going to have to play in AJGA. You're going to have to, have to get your game to this level. Um, so we always had a plan moving forward. And I would prep him, hey, you're going to go play in your first AJGA event in Florida. We have to learn how to travel. And is your game going to travel when you're playing Bermuda? And so we were always thinking ahead of the challenges he was going to have instead of playing a tournament and go, oh, we weren't prepared. I never wanted that to happen. So we were fortunate he was able to play in a lot of great junior events. He played a Cal. Um, their program was wonderful in that it, I think it really helped support where his goals were going. Great team, great coaching staff. So, but my philosophy was always looking ahead. So at Cal, he got to play on the Walker Cup team. Well, we got him ready for that. And then a year out of pro, we were thinking ahead of when he's going to turn pro. And what are some of the challenges we're going to have? What are the things we're going to have to think about now and not have to wait until later? Henrik, we, we saw an example of his ability to stay calm under pressure at the Workday Charity Open when he had to sink that 24-footer to tie Justin Thomas after JT sunk that incredible 50-footer. How do you teach somebody, whether it's Colin or just one of us, you know, to stay focused because you're witnessing an amazing putt and now you think, oh my God, I gotta, now I gotta make this putt just a tie after watching that thing roll in from way downtown? How do you not let, you know, you're sort of, you know, hang your head and think, yeah, I, I don't got a chance here. And, but, Rise above that, sink the putt, go right on top of it, and then go on and win a golf tournament. Right. So so one trait that I didn't talk about is his competitive fire. And that's something that I do with all my juniors golfers is at the end, I do most of my lessons are playing lessons, by the way. And so 70% of the lessons that I did with Colin when he was a junior were always on the golf course. We hit multiple shots from multiple situations. But at the end of every session, we did a competition. I didn't care if he was 8 years old, 12 years old, didn't matter to me. I wanted to compete against them and see how a junior would would look at competition. He always took it on. Even though I was the pro and I was much older, he said, okay, let's go. And so I knew that he takes every situation as there's always an opportunity to win. Okay. Now his back was against the wall. JT makes his 50 footer. Great. But he's always looking ahead like, okay, this is what I love competition. And he doesn't shy away from competition. Uh, a lot of talented juniors and, and some other players in our older years, we're fearful of competition. What if we lose? He doesn't think about what if we lose. He's going, hey, I got an opportunity to win. So competitive fire was a trait that he has that keeps him moving forward instead of thinking about what's wrong or what could happen if I don't do it. Eric, as you talk about, you know, looking ahead and always preparing for the next thing, I mean, obviously he went on to win the PGA Championships a few weeks later finishes sixth at the tour championship 
after that. And, he, and he's done all of these things at the age of 23. I mean, he's just a kid. From a, from a mental standpoint, how do you keep him sort of grounded and focused? You know, my father always talks about, you know, athletes reading their press clippings, right? Getting kind of getting a big head. You're talking about looking mm-hmm. ahead. How do you keep him grounded and not just sort of, wow, okay, I've done a lot of this stuff. I'm only 23. Great. But reaching for the next thing. Yeah, I think there's two things. I think uh, having goals is a way to look forward um, and not rest on your laurels. Uh, Colin has always embraced having goals for the next season or what he wants to do, let's say, for the next five years. So he keeps moving forward. I think the other thing you mentioned, which is, is crucial, is back to expectations, is that he, you have to talk to him, but I don't think he cares what the media thinks about him or the media thinks he should be this or that or um, he doesn't really listen uh, because it's irrelevant, right? He, he's going to be harder on himself than any media or than any other person, including me. Which, so he's already hard on himself. He has a high standard for himself. But I think having goals that are now back to specific of what's in his control. So we look at his stats. We look at trends. We look at what we learned uh, from this past season. How could we, let's say, get better at you know, pitch shots from out of the rock, for instance, because we know that that's an area that he can improve upon. Or maybe it's putts from six to 10 feet that we're just a hair below where we want to be. So we start breaking it down to performance-based goals, and then that gives him something to go practice. That gives him some clarity of what he's going to train. And we've always done a good job with that, and it doesn't change now that he's a top, you know, top six player in the world. Craig, just a couple more before I let you go. Now I kind of want to go back in time. because I read when you were when you were at Cal uh, Cal State Northridge, you played out of Chevy Chase Country Club, and I think we all hear Chevy Chase and we think Caddyshack, right? It's not that Chevy Chase. It's actually a a beautiful nine hole historic golf club that dates all the way back to 1927, a William Bell designed course. Talk about uh, if that was that your home course. Talk about playing there. Yeah, no, it actually was a course that I utilized for my teaching. So uh, Colin was actually a member there, and uh, I taught there for about five years. Um, no driving range, just a little net. And it, it's a cool design, very narrow golf course, a um, little on the short side. Greens were perfect, um, but a lot of undulation. So what it did for me as a coach was be able to provide so many different variables for my players. We just hop in a cart and, you know, this upslope up lie and this green and this and be able to put people in situations. So Chevy Chase was a wonderful facility for me me to be able to talk about mental game skills, do pre-shot routine when you've got OB right, OB left, you know? So I I love that facility, and uh, Colin developed a lot of his game there. Rick, you've written a wonderful book, Golf the Ultimate Mind Game, and boy, we can certainly see why you would be an expert uh, in the field, why you got your doctorate, and uh, potentially what's in this book. But let our listeners know, what's available in the book and why they need to go out on Amazon or, or Barnes and Noble and go get themselves a copy of it. Uh, well, thank you. I, I wrote that book uh, about now it's about 14 years ago. It was actually my final project for my, my doctorate and I'm proud of it. I, I call it kind of an introductory um, mental game book for golf. It uh, talks about the fundamentals, which I think are part of the mental game, motivation, goal setting, focus, emotions, uh, confidence, uh, practice. How do you prepare for tournaments? And I want people just to have a very much how they can actually apply it. Uh, I believe the mental game, there's been some wonderful coaches and wonderful authors throughout the years that have written some wonderful books. 
I just wanted it to be more hands-on. I wanted it to be more like, this is what I can apply today instead of me maybe being more theory-based. Um, so I want people to read those chapters. There's, there's things to do after each chapter to get them to apply these principles. And hey, if you improve your mindset and you improve your appreciate routine and these skills, you are going to enjoy the game more and you're going to shoot lower scores. Rick, let our listeners know how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether it's on your website, your podcast, or no, and on social media as well. Well, thank you. Yeah, my, my website is my full name, uh, ricksessinghouse.com. Um, every now and then I do some stuff on social media, Instagram and Facebook. Usually I'm, I'm putting posts about what Colin and I are working on at a tournament site, uh, which has been fun for a lot of uh, people following Colin and myself to see his, his transformation as he, he plays on the PGA Tour. Um, but yeah, please, if somebody has a question or something like that, I do a lot of my mental game coaching via Zoom. So I have clients all over the world, which is a lot of fun nowadays with technology. So, uh, but if somebody has a question about a mental game or something, please, you know, go to my website, ricksessinghouse.com and, and uh, you can connect with me there.